Good morning. Good to see each of you in the service today. Take your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. And we're going to begin reading in verse number 27 in just a moment. Do you ever feel like everything is against you? Maybe some days you feel like the person who said, Sometimes I get the feeling that the whole world is against me. But deep down I know that's not true. Some of the smaller nations are neutral. If you ever feel like you're having a bad day or you're being persecuted, this is a good story for you to read. I don't know if this is true of everybody's family, and I don't know if everybody says this, but in my family there was this this statement that someone was snake bit. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase. The term was used to describe someone who no matter what they undertook to do, It was doomed to failure or some kind of catastrophe. Paul must have felt like that literally during this time. Paul has, and with his friends have been in a storm, literal, physical storm at sea. Verses 23 through 25, we've seen that the Lord appeared to Paul and gave him some encouragement. But after he's received this encouragement and before God saved them from the sinking ship, things actually got worse before they got better. As darkness continued, their sounding revealed that the ship was getting nearer to shore. The only problem with that was that it almost certainly meant that they were going to die. We want to look first of all at the assurance of survival in verses 27 through 36. Now, when the 14th night, this is the 14th night of the storm that they've been in, had come. As we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors sensed that we were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they'd gone a little further, they took soundings again and they found it to be 15 fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved." Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiffs and let them fall away. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have waited and continued without food and have eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread And gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. And they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. So in the midst of discouraging circumstances and in the midst of a discouraged people, he acted on a different basis from all of those around him. And the result was that they were all encouraged. One man with hope in his heart and encouragement on his lips was able to change 
the attitude of 275 other people so that they were able to physically prepare themselves for the hardships that lay ahead. Paul notices something that apparently the captain of the ship does not. There is an attempt by some of the sailors to lower the dinghy with the intention of fleeing the ship. Paul was not a sailor, but he was an experienced traveler, and he realized what they were up to. Had the sailors succeeded, then all the experienced hands who could have taken the ship into shore would have been gone, making landing without a full crew almost impossible. Paul asked the soldier, the centurion, the captain, to stop the sailors from carrying out their plan. They cut the ropes to keep the sailors from escaping, but unfortunately they also, in so doing, made the boats unavailable for those on board who could not swim. And notice things get worse in abandoning the ship in verse 39. And when it was day, when it became daylight, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. And by striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the bow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on board, some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. In the morning, when the daylight came, they cut the ropes to the anchor so that They would all be released at the same time, keep the ship pointed toward the shore. They steered the ship toward the shore, and then they made a run for it. Unfortunately, the ship became hung on a sandbar, and the waves from behind began to break the vessel apart. Now, remember, this vessel has been for 14 days, has been in a storm, and is being slowly broken apart anyway. This time, it is not the sailors that panic, but the soldiers who panic. They believe that the prisoners might escape, which would cost the soldiers their life if they had. So they decided the best possible course was just to kill all the prisoners. The centurion stopped them from their plans. And as the ship broke apart from the waves, those on board jumped into the water. Those who could swim headed for shore. Those who couldn't swim grabbed onto a piece of the ship or one of the pieces of cargo, and they rode the waves into the shallow water. We're told that all 276 people safely arrived on shore. Not one person was lost. Just as Paul had promised, God delivered on his promise, even though the odds seemed stacked against Paul's promise being made good. According to verse 44, each and every one of the passengers and crew 
made it to safety. Now in verse 20, uh, chapter 28, in verse 1, we begin to look at the reception that these people receive on the island of Malta. In the midst of their troubles, storms, and trials of every sort, we need to be aware that God is still with us and that he is still in control. Paul's shipwreck was no mistake. There were miracles to be done and people to be saved. It is not different than today. God takes us through tough times. And we're left wondering sometimes, when we are in the midst of it all, how things are going to turn out. Everything seems to crash in on us, but we must remember to trust in God. Notice they received with kindness. It was only after they made it to shore that they learned where they were. According to verse 1, now when they had escaped, they, they then found that they were on the island called Malta. Malta is a small island. It's about 18 miles long and about 8 miles wide. And it's located about 60 miles south of Sicily. Those who had made it to shore now were wet and miserable and cold. According to verse 2, And the natives showed us some unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. Now, the inhabitants of the island are referred to as natives in our text. The word in the Greek is the word that we get the word barbarian from. The natives of the island gathered at the shore to offer assistance to the passengers of the ship as they made their way to shore. I can imagine that some of these natives even went into the water to help those who were exhausted and those who were non-swimmers. After they have welcomed them to the shore, they begin to build a large fire to warm the shivering survivors. Not only were the passengers and crews chilled from the water, but we're told that it is raining as well. Now, notice what happens when bad things begin to happen here. Now, Paul may have thought to himself, as we do sometimes, good grief, it can't get any worse. And whenever we make that statement or we, ever, we think that, what happens usually? It gets worse. Verse 3 says, But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out of because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. So, When gathering wood for the fire, apparently Paul gathered more than just wood. A viper, apparently lying dormant among the sticks, came to life as Paul placed the wood upon the fire and immediately fastens itself to Paul's hand. The snake is referred to as a viper, something that has bothered some Bible critics for many, many years. Since the viper mentioned here is poisonous and there are none that exist on the island of Malta today. No poisonous snakes whatsoever. But the answer to that issue is not all that difficult to discover. It is certainly not unthinkable that on a small island that is very heavily populated 
that all the poisonous snakes were eradicated long ago. But there can be little doubt when we take into the fact that the natives fully expected Paul to die or at least to become very ill, according to verse number 6. I want you to notice Paul's reaction to the snake bite. It was rather simple and decisive. Verse 5 says, but he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Paul didn't fly into a moment of panic. He simply flung the creature from himself into the fire. Now, if you had been around me and the viper had been attached to my hand, you might not have wanted to have been in the immediate area because somebody might have got a snake flung on them because I would be more than anxious to get rid of that snake. Neither did Paul do anything super spiritual. He didn't immediately kneel in prayer or call for an impromptu prayer meeting by all those who were gathered with him. He didn't say some pious last words or deliver a sermon. He just simply went on with what he was doing. Now, it does lead us to some thoughts about suffering and hardship. First of all, there is a supposition about suffering and hardship that we have to recognize here in our text. And that is the supposition, the thought by some individuals that any hardship, any difficulty, any tragedy or calamity in life is evidence of God's judgment. I want you to notice that the natives have a nice little theological package explanation for what happens to Paul. In verse 4, when they see that he has been bitten, they say, So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. According to them, Paul is undoubtedly a murderer. And although he has escaped death in the storm, fate in the form of this snake has caught up with him. They held to the tenant that is still held in many places today, and that is that calamity is always a proof of evil. It is always proof of the judgment of God. They thought calamity was the evidence of divine punishment. So we have to ask ourselves, so was the storm that Paul had to endure and the snake might evidence then that God was angry with Paul? Was was Paul arrested two years previous? Was that evidence that he was out of God's will? When bad things happen we tend to ask the question, why? This notion that all suffering is divine retribution does deserve a closer examination. It certainly is nothing new. It was the explanation that was offered to Job in the Old Testament. When Job experienced the tragic sorrow of the loss of all of his possessions, and all of his family, and even his health, his friends ultimately turned to him and said, the reason that you are suffering, Job, is because you're a great sinner. 
the natives of Malta mistakenly thought that all wickedness is punished in this life. They watch Paul and they're waiting for what they knew must come, swelling and death. But as they watched and saw no harm come to him, they realized that this was not the case and they changed their minds completely. And they show us also how fickle public opinion can be. Verse 6 says, However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Paul's miraculous deliverance is such a surprise to the natives that they now conclude that Paul must be a god. That's quite a change of mind. In fact, in just a few short minutes, they had concluded that he he was a horrible criminal to have been bitten by the snake, and now that he survived, they said, well, he he must be a god. So what should we make of that incident? I believe that we have an authentic case of apostolic authority for the Apostle Paul. In Mark chapter 15, you might just want to write this in your margin somewhere. Mark chapter 15, verses 17 and 18, we find some very controversial verses. Those verses read, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, Here's the part you want to see. And they will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. In this last chapter of the book of Acts, we see two of those signs being manifested in the Apostle Paul's life. He picked up serpents and they didn't hurt him. And he laid hands on the sick and he healed them. But these things Paul established among a pagan people, his authority to speak for God. We have to remember the the transitional nature of the book of Acts. We believe that the sign gifts, and that's what's being talked about here, are not for our day. Yet there are those today who use this scripture to validate their handling of snakes. According to the Dean of Wake Forest School of Divinity in North Carolina, there have been at least 80 snakebite deaths in churches since 1900. But notice with me that Paul did not knowingly handle snakes, nor nor was it done as a demonstration of his faith. There's a second thing that we might consider, and that is the significance of suffering. There are several that I could point out to you, and I'll just point them out to you briefly. One is what we might call common suffering. The problem is that Christians live in a fallen world, and sin has affected everything around us. The Christians in New Orleans and on the Gulf Coast were as devastated by Hurricane Katrina as 
the unbelievers were. We know from our own experience that Christians suffered loss by the tornado in our community last April, just like those who were non-Christians. Christians are subject to the ravages of weather and snake bites just like anyone else. As the prophet Job stated in, I'm reading this from the contemporary English version, he says, our suffering isn't caused by the failure of crops. It's a part of life, just like sparks shooting upward. There is also corrective suffering. As Christians, children of God, when we go astray, God sometimes uses hardship in our lives to bring us back to our senses. The premier teaching in the New Testament on the discipline of God to his children is found in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter number 12. And beginning in verse number 5, he says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? There is also constructive suffering. God can and does use suffering, hardship, to develop faith and character in the lives of Christians. In the book of Romans, in chapter number 5, in verse number 3, we read, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And then the fourth characteristic is that is Christ-glorifying suffering. Like the natives on Malta, people often look at hardship and calamity and at least wonder within themselves whether the person whose experiences has somehow brought these hardships on themselves. Jesus addressed that thought pattern twice in his teachings. First, in Luke chapter 13, he used what was at that time a recent event in which a tower had collapsed and 18 people had been killed. He asked the question, were those 18 people who died the worst sinners that could be found in the city of Jerusalem? And the answer, of course... Is no. And in another instance, as he and his disciples were walking along, they saw a blind man, and so the disciples asked the Lord, Lord, who did sin, this man or his parents? They thought that all calamity 
was the result of the judgment of God. And Jesus answered rather surprisingly in John chapter 9 and verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. In other words, to bring glory to God. The fourth and final thing that we look at this morning is the ministry on Malta. Paul and his friends were taken into the estate of the leading citizen of the island. We can probably take that to mean that he was the governor of the island who received them and entertained them courteously for three days. When they are there, they learned that the governor's father was sick. He lay sick of a fever and dysentery, and Paul went into him and prayed. Now, I want to break in in the middle of that verse in order that we don't miss something that I think is very important. It says that Paul did not presume that God would heal this man until first he prayed. We never see Paul act as though he could turn on and off the power of God like a faucet. Paul only acted after he determined what the will of God was. I believe that Paul only laid hands on this man to heal him after he determined that it was God's will to do so. Verse 8 then continues, And he laid hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. Now here's something that you don't need to miss. When Luke says that the father of the governor was healed, he used a Greek word that means instantaneous healing, miraculous healing. But when he says in verse 9 that the rest of the island who had diseases came and were healed, it's a different word. He used a different word entirely, a word that refers to a gradual cure. I believe that we're seeing here a unique blend of medical skill and divine healing. Luke, the physician, in the three months that they are on the island, was involved in the cures of the diseases of many of the islanders. Those two ideas, medical skill and divine healing, are not contrary to one another, but rather they both stem from the grace and power of God. The father of the governor was divinely and instantly healed, but the others were healed through the agency of doctors and medicine, but both derived from God. When after three months Paul left Malta, he left more like an honorary dignitary than a prisoner of Rome. It says in verse 10, And they also honored us in many ways, and when we had departed, They provided such things as were necessary. I just want to conclude this morning with this one brief thought. This episode from Paul's life is a reminder that God is good, that God watches and provides for his people. Though at times our faith may be tested, when he does not seem to be near, he is still near and still in control. And when you cannot see God's hand, you learn to trust God's heart. Accounts like this encourage us to never lose faith. 
but to trust in God's care to lead us through the stormy seas of life. Let's pray. Father, it may be that someone here is in a storm in their life, not a physical storm, but an emotional or financial or family storm. And they've been trying to battle alone. Maybe it's because they don't know you as their personal Lord and Savior. And if that's the case, then Lord, I I pray that you might reveal yourself to them today, that they might understand that you are real and that you are present and that you are willing to help if they will but turn their lives over to you. Help them to recognize that they're sinners just like the rest of us. They can't save themselves, but that Jesus has already done everything necessary to remove our sins by paying for those sins on the cross of Calvary and that all we must do is receive that gift. Father, if there's one here today that needs that, then I pray that you'd help them to repent of their sins and turn to you and simply ask to be forgiven. There may be those here today who are believers but still in a storm. Being your child, being a Christian, does not remove us from the storms. They still come. But we have you to turn to and find our strength in. And so, Lord, I pray that you might empower those today who may be struggling. I pray that you just provide them with a sense that you're present, that you're with them, that you love them, that you care about what happens in their lives. Father, we just want to turn this time over to you if we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Brother Steve's going to be here.